Hello everyone. My name is Fatou Sise. Welcome to Super Aging Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging and amplify caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. Today I am speaking with Ms. Gina Green-Harris. Gina was named the inaugural director for the Center for Community Engagement and Health Partnerships in Milwaukee. The center is a newly created center to further advance research in the African-American community in a culturally inclusive manner. This office builds upon the health equity work that Ms. Gina Green-Harris has implemented at the University of Wisconsin for the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Regional Milwaukee office with the overall goal to introduce and integrate research programs that are culturally tailored to address the needs of Southeastern Wisconsin's underserved and underrepresented communities. As the director of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute, Milwaukee, she provides leadership and governance to guide and build the capacity of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute, Milwaukee office, which is designed to provide outreach services, programs, resources, and to recruit African-Americans into the research using culturally tailored methods. Along with being the director of the Milwaukee Regional Office, she also leads the health equity pillar of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute and serves as one of the WPM SPH Diversity Inclusion Ambassadors. Ms. Gina Harris was recently appointed as the director and life and investigator of the life course of Healthy families, a like community-based initiative of the UWMSPH to address the issues of infant mortality in African-American communities across Milwaukee, Racine, and Kenosa, Wisconsin. Ms. Gina Harris is recognized leader for her work by community leaders, executives, and researchers across Wisconsin and global leaders to learn about their outreach and recruitment models. She has been recruited to serve on the national think tanks, including most recently, the National Institute of Health National Strategy for Retention and Recruitment. Ms. Gina Harris holds a master's degree in business administration and a bachelor's of science in psychology. She is currently pursuing her PhD in clinical investigation studying how to improve rates of participation in clinical research by members of the marginalized communities. Welcome, Gina. I'm really delighted to have you on today at the Super Agent Podcast. It's really a treat to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Fatu. I appreciate the invitation and thank you so much for having me today. You're very welcome. So this is, uh, we're in February. So this is February 4th, right? All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my dates. <laughs> so today is February 4th and um, it's uh, Black History Month. I wanted to hear from you what's the significance of Black History Month and also how does it tie to our aging experience? Absolutely. It's just ironic. So I have this shirt that I actually could have worn, should have worn. It says I am Black History. So I, I might have to pull it out for you. Uh, oh, well, I would in love honor to see of that. Black History Month. I will pull it out before we get off this show. Okay. Oh, I would love that. 
Yes. What What's interesting is so what a what, lovely question to start out with. Um, mm -hmm. But Black History Month for me, uh, it's actually just a, a treat on top of an already sweet uh, opportunity to celebrate the work of African-Americans and the contributions that we have made to this country mm -hmm. uh, and Africans as well. And I think what happens in this month is we are able to bring the culmination, historical pieces of work, inventions, science, everything that Black folks have done to mm -hmm. actually make significant changes into how our forming of how America functions is all allowed to be shared in this month. What I, what I will say is, interestingly enough, is mm -hmm. that while this is a proud moment for us as, as Black folks, right, in this country, right. uh, Black history, in my mind, is every day. Because uh, I am Black history, right? Yeah, and so, so we true. all, yes, you know, yeah. you and I, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors every day. Absolutely. And our contributions mm -hmm. to what is in, you know, whether it's, and I'll talk a little bit about aging, but the science of all of the, a lot of the work and research that is happening today mm -hmm. is a direct, a direct result of the work that Black folks have done in the early 18, 1900s. And so mm -hmm. it's really something to be able to now bring that information out, right? You know, yes. when we about the George Washington Carvers and when we start thinking about you know Crispus Attucks and all of these great folks from our our ancestry that mm -hmm. have contributed to this work that we are able quite frankly Fatu that yeah. we are able to do today right you know I think yeah. of Marcus Garvey and mm -hmm. I just get so excited about all of those folks who are really part yeah. of history before civil rights right, right, uh, right. You know Yes, you know, uh, William Daniels and all of his med medical uh, models he created and mm -hmm. Charles Drew, right? We really get the opportunity to celebrate those. So, and how does that actually matriculate when we talk about aging? I think mm -hmm. what is really powerful is that if we take this opportunity to look back at our history, our heritage, we actually had opportunities to age and age well because we were able to do healthy activities though we didn't want to, right? So we we know that social determinants of health have caused poor aging for African-Americans. But as we age, we still have a really rich ancestral history that we can look back at and say, what exactly did our ancestors do to get it right? Because right. outside of slavery, we actually, you know, we lived well right that whole adage about black doesn't crack but right. we were able to be physically active um mm -hmm. there was healthy eating right we found ways to make food not only tasty but healthy and so we really have to in my mind think about you know and those were survival modes right but we yeah. think about where we can go from here and find new ways to improve our aging as we go forth but i look at at aging black history month i think this is an opportunity for us to embrace our original food cultures right what do we take off of the african continent right we exactly. think about our yams our greens our, yes those were healthy foods that we were actually able to you know use for our advantage in our homeland so i think there's a lot to do uh around. definitely a lot yeah. to do and talking about food food are really really healthy choices and yeah. and then then talking about medicine and aging i mean integrative medicine yes it's africa right absolutely and say many people in africa are using the, those kind of yes. remedies for healthy issues absolutely. so 
you know, and I remember being a little girl and, uh, you know, we would get ill and, you know, my grandmother would go in there and brew a pot of greens and then we'd drink the, the, what they would call them pot liquor, the juice, right? Right, right. But we feel better. And it was something of a diuretic. It was something Mm -hmm. of a healing component. Now what we hear is when you're ill, you have a cold chicken soup uh, is what right. it's the bro- it's the broth of the chicken yeah soup. the broth yeah but our ancestors and our grandmothers and our you know knew that coming in right and we know that growing up and now it's traditionally things that we pass down so yeah there is not you know this I just think there's many contributions to medicine that may look outside of the traditional clinic you know, networks and clinic structures, clinical structures that we've been using for for centuries that have been healing our people. So yeah, I'm excited about that. You know, that's very true. Talking about that, for me too, growing up, there is this one tree, it's it's called neem tree. Usually, regardless of what kind of illness people are faced with, Grandparents get that, boiled it, and then we steam on on it. And then you can also like drink the the liquid of what they have boiled. It's really bitter, but mm-hmm. whatever illness that you're going through, it goes off. Exactly, <laughs> right? Illness, right? It and doesn't have to taste no, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's no side effects to it. So mm-hmm. we got to remember those roots and, you know, and oh, it's yeah. the impact on our so um, talking about that transitioning into super agent, what does super agent means to you? Yeah, that's interesting. So super aging to me, of course, you know, there's this school of thought. Uh, if you were talking about there's some folks who've been looking at the brains to say that folks in their 80s have not been aging as quickly as some folks in the 30s. And, you know, that's really important. But super aging to me is just really what it says. And that is taking care of yourself and making sure that you are as healthy as can be so that as you grow older, you will experience, a, you know, just a, a quality of living, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that allows you to still continue to enjoy life right. as you age. And I think that's really some of the lessons that we get to learn from some of our super agers. What are you doing in your midlife or early life to mm-hmm. actually be able to still do and function as a 35-year-old at 80, right? Mm-hmm. Super agers, right? The yeah. ones who are 90. I have an uncle who just turned 80 and he still mows his own lawn. He oh, still God. climbs the trees and trims the trees. He is a super ager to that me. Is incredible. He, absolutely. You know, yeah. and he interestingly enough, he, he spent his life working for the phone company. And so he was used to climbing poles and going in holes and digging deep. And so he took that as part of his life. And so his entire life, he had great physical activity. And what's ironic about that is his diet. Well, it wasn't full of, you know, vegetables and, and though he didn't eat a lot of fat, but he didn't necessarily eat the green vegetables they were talking about, but he did take his his physical activity seriously and he kept himself clean and you know didn't drink too much whatever but he's mm-hmm. a super ager he's doing his his vitals are that of someone who's twice younger than him right so wow. in his younger age and mm-hmm. so what's powerful about that is that again i learned from him cuz i watched you know people who are in in their 60s who can't do half of the things he does he drives he's independent you know nice. he he, he performs like a 40 year old. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, trimming edges and bushes. And yeah, it's really a great, I think uh, super agers is something that we 
as, as this uh, generation X can learn from as right. we are aging, because we know we are still focusing, uh, our, excuse me, we still are suffering from tons of chronic conditions earlier in our lives. Early on too. Yes, and those super agers are missing that, but it's really trying to figure out what have you guys done? And I know there's research out there that's focusing on them right now right, to say, yeah. what exactly have you, what are you doing that's different? Because it's not just one cookie cutter uh, message. You know, not all of them are super healthy eaters. Not all of them are, you know, always physically active. Yeah, but they just have this, you know, and then the question is genetics. Let's talk if that is absolutely the power the the piece that's making the difference but mm -hmm. i would venture to say that super aging is genetic but i'd also would say that you know we can find out we can do to also become super agers and wow. you know my paternal grandmother lived to be a hundred and and was again a super ager no health conditions no chronic illnesses lived on her own for until the last six months when she was declining and passed away so it was amazing so definitely yeah, I look forward yeah. to being a super ager. How's that? Possible? Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Good. Well, um, so now our next thing for our listeners who are not familiar with Alzheimer's, it is a disease of the brain. When it gets to a certain point, can interfere with activities of daily living of the individual. And a lot of forgetfulness and also judgment, impairments, and all that stuff that comes with Alzheimer's. I wanted to ask, what has been your experience in research studies exploring the importance of discrepancies and the relevance and in the prevalence of Alzheimer's among Black communities? Yeah, that's actually a great question, uh, Fatu. Mm -hmm. So professionally, as you know, I work with the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute uh, at the yeah. university. And, you know, there's this great study, which is the RAP study, the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention. Mm -hmm. And it actually is doing a fantastic job of understanding and trying to understand the impact of Alzheimer's disease. It started out, what started out as just, uh, I shouldn't say just, but started out as a smaller study around mm -hmm. family history has now graduated into this fantastic research opportunity around clinical issues, mm -hmm. metabolic issues. I mean, including of multiple areas that we know are impacting families uh, who are uh, diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And I will say uh, to your question, part yeah, of this yeah. research study has been the strength of it now is actually trying to delve into that question and how does Alzheimer's disease impact Black community Mm -hmm. And I think over the last, I'll say about five years or so, if not more, I know we initially started trying to answer that question over 13 years ago when the Milwaukee uh, Regional Office of the Alzheimer's Institute was started. And the research question was, can we get African-Americans enrolled in this RAF study so that we can understand better what are some of the um, influencing factors around African-Americans uh, who are suffering from dementia or some form of dementia and mm -hmm. cognitive impairment? I will say since that time, there has been a real concerted effort to understand what is the differences in black, white dementia in our communities. And so I think there has been you know, not enough 
But I think we're on the cusp of really trying to delve into it with intentionality of asking that question, right? So the data shows that, you know, we definitely know there are some differences in African-Americans and, you know, African-Americans prevalence is greater for mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease, but the question still remains why. And I think that is where um, the science is actually driving and should be driving over the next several years. Yeah, I mean, the discrepancies definitely is alarming, given about two, two times more likely. Yeah, so times more likely for black people than white people. So yeah, um, and I think what's interesting about that too is that we use that statistic to say, you know, African Americans are you know, roughly two times more likely to develop some form of cognitive, you know, impairment, dementia. But the question after that should be, let's figure out why and what that looks like. And is it just, you know, people are talking about, obviously, the social determinants of health, where we talk about chronic illnesses that African-Americans have that actually exacerbate Alzheimer's symptoms or Alzheimer's trajectory. So the diabetes that's uncontrolled, the hypertension that's uncontrolled, those cardiovascular vascular diseases, right? Because we know that Alzheimer's is, you know, vascular of nature, right? So we talk about that in discrepancy for African-Americans, but my question is a little bigger than that to say, okay, but also let's figure out how are we actually diagnosing African-Americans? You know, there's been papers around, is this the testing? Lisa Barnes at Rush has written mm-hmm. about African-Americans are diagnosed, but is it is it that we have more dementia or is it that the way we're doing some of the testing for dementia or some of the questions we're asking on some of the assessments, how is that impacting some some of these outcomes. I'm not saying, you know, that we don't have it, but let's figure out some of those other things that we know, you know, let, let's talk about what it is. Because when we look at even, mm-hmm. again, there have been studies that show aside, genetics aside, or all these other risk factors aside, we're not sure why African-Americans are suffering from dementia more well. yeah. and Alzheimer's. And so that that's still out there and we need to answer that question as well. Um, But I think, again, there are a lot more studies that are focused specifically on communities of color, African-Americans, our Latinx community, as well as our Native community. And we're trying Mm -hmm. to really figure those answers out. Um, And studies, not just at the UW, but across the world and the globe now, are, are trying to finally figure that out because this disparity is amazing that it's still the same after all these years. Let's figure out how to close the gap now. You know, and I think the disparity is not only is it geared towards Alzheimer's, although that's where we are discussing more today, but also across other diseases, like even diabetes, like you mentioned, hypertension, which are all linked to Alzheimer's in some ways, but it's, they're also more prevalent in the yeah. African-American community. And I think to your point, the why that's happening needs to mm-hmm. be figured out. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, people would argue that it, you know, well, what about the social determinants of health, you know, Mm -hmm. access to care, right? You know, poverty is an issue when we're talking about why we have so many more social determinants of health in the community. Education, right? We know that education is important because it builds, you know, our brains and it Mm -hmm. it gives us that expansion of brain knowledge, brain power, right? And so the residual of that is, you know, we, you know, but the question is, is it a general education, right? Or is it education in general? How do we know? And then what are the studies showing around that? What form of education are we talking about? (laughs) Exactly, right? Is it beyond formal education? 
education, right? Yeah. What 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 does you know? Because when we think about it, and and it could be you know African Americans didn't live as long, but when we look at um, our elders, not all of our elders got dementia. So what was going on? You know, and folks are like, right. well, maybe they didn't live long enough. I can't tell you that I'm a scientist that has that particular answer, but I am curious because I do believe that, of course, we know that there are some structural racism issues in place Mm -hmm. that actually do impact our health. And, you know, they say racism gets under your skin, which means that racism, the social construct of racism actually Mm -hmm. does impact your health. I'm talking blood levels. I'm talking about heart levels because Mm -hmm. it it increases our stress and it releases unhealthy, uh, you know, part it's unhealthy to be stressed all the time, right? Mm -hmm. The the cortisol, it needs to prolong stress. Yeah. Exactly. Prolonged stress, Mm -hmm. you know, that does impact our brains and it impacts our health overall, right? Um, We know that uh, heart disease is a result Mm -hmm. of chronic stress, right? We know that poor heart disease, then of course you will, if you have heart disease, excuse me, then you Mm -hmm. will definitely have some impact of brain disease, right? So we know that all of that is relevant when we talk about this being relative to black communities in particular Mm -hmm. of why we may experience cognitive uh, impairment, dementia, Alzheimer's, vascular dementia more often. And and I think the bigger question to me again is we know that, we know Mm -hmm. these facts. Let's figure out what what are the next steps now? I think we're in the season of saying, we know that again, structural racism is something we've Mm -hmm. called out. What are we going to do about it? And how do we reduce these social determinants of health in a meaningful way that will actually improve our health overall, not just for dementia, but just quite frankly, overall, to your point about that first question, to be a super ager. Yeah. So um, talking about that, as far as prolonged stress, there is a thing with stigma Mm -hmm. when it comes to trying to get, say, go into therapy or deal with mental illness or mental health aggressive way if you will i think one of the things that us as a community that's a tough thing for us to have to like come around to and actually deal with it head on Mm -hmm. and i think the prolonged stress could also that could be an, an avenue to address that as well what do you think are the best approach to get people to accept that kind of help, help, you know, to at least first acknowledge the issue and then Mm -hmm. accept the help that are out there um, for those kind of things. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. Uh, And so I think, you know, in in communities of color, and particularly, and I'll speak from my own experience, you know, as a Black woman, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for so long as a people, we have had to, you know, we're resilient people. Now, let me be clear. Black folks Mm -hmm. are resilient. We are resilient group of, uh, of individuals and, collect, and a collective, we're resilient, right? Yeah. And so sometimes what has been, and what has been confused with resilience is strength and, mm-hmm. and strength, individual strength or strength, independent external resources to support your strength, right? Mm-hmm. So what do I mean by that? What I'm saying is, so for so long, we have been able, we have been having to 
bear the burden of the weight of the world on our shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so we are now just getting to the point where we are able to acknowledge that's a lot of work. That's a lot to do. It is. It's a lot. And it's heavy and it's it's not fair. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we can continue to do and yeah. actually maintain. But mm -hmm. but we could not admit that because it would then admit weakness of sort and or defeat. And I think the way I look at it as someone who's been in that space before, it is because there's an expectation that we are resilient, that yes. we're tolerant, and mm -hmm. that we can handle this. Yes. And then I'll throw another component. So, so we've had that messaging to us generationally, right? Yes. Uh, slaves were strong. Slaves mm -hmm. endured. It's, mm -hmm. not as, it's not as bad as slavery was, right? So you yeah. can handle this, right? This is a different kind of suffering. Yeah but you yeah. can handle this. Our ancestors did it. Now we can do it, right? We, we've taken, we took that mantle on. The other mantle we've taken on is that, That's you know, heavy, heavy burden. Oh, it's God. a heavy burden. It yeah. is, but we were resilient and could do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we're not resilient and we can't do it, but we also have to acknowledge that we are human and yes. that we don't have the capacity to carry everything, internalize mm -hmm. it, and actually do it in silos, right? We, what we really do need to acknowledge, and I think we're getting there, is mm -hmm. acknowledging that it takes a village to handle the weight. And so we don't have to take this on as individuals and, and suffer in silence anymore. It's okay to acknowledge that this is overbearing and overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving up, but I do need to talk to someone about this. Yes. And I think we're getting to that place now. I think the other piece about it is that, you know, we as a community have a very strong faith and our faith teaches us that if we carry this and cast our burdens, right, cast our cares on the Lord for he loves you, he cares for you, he's going to help you through this. What we forget is casting our cares means actually sometimes asking for help, right? If yeah, we, we completely missed that point that we need to actually get out there and ask for the, the help that's yeah. needed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's not taboo to do so, right? Nah. Because the scriptures teach us, and we've been taught by our faith that it really is okay. But mm -hmm. what the misunderstanding is, is that no, 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 you just pray about it and it goes away. Well, we pray about it, but even after we pray, there's a next step. Next step there's yeah. an action step to actually using the resources that are available to us to actually you to do something different, right? To yes. to say, okay, I know that it's not bad for me to own that I'm mm -hmm. stressed, I'm overwhelmed, and I can't do this on my own and I need to talk to someone. And that's okay. And I think that's the piece where we have always, you know, believed that we're we're not okay. And so our faith is, is one thing that we have to recognize that even with faith, it's okay to ask for help. Uh, and you're not losing your right mind by saying, I right. just can't handle it. I can't do right it. Now. I need help. Yeah. We, we really okay. need to get strong on that point um, and seek help as we need them. Yeah. 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 And it's okay to do that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And with that, COVID, good Lord. Good Lord that, is right. Uh, seriously, it's uh, that has negatively impacted our community. Mm -hmm. And I know part of it also is a, a lot of us are ex exposed to jobs that people that are more congregated, if you mm -hmm. will, um, and then 
definitely that's the opposite of what COVID would like, right? Sure. So, um, yeah, and, and that impacts our community greatly. Mm-hmm. And also maybe our home settings too is a lot of times congregational, like there's multiple generations or multiple people within one household. So we've seen a lot of dead in the African community, African-American community or Af- black community in general with COVID. And I, each time I think about it too, it's like the long-term impact of that in our communities, the grief that we are going through, the losses that had happened. Moving forward, I mean, this thing is still here and it's still yeah. doing the damage. I'm trying to think, are there like any resources that are geared towards helping our communities like the African-American community to cope with this and then get help? The resources, are they available to us? Yeah, so that, that's a lot of questions in one, uh, Fatu. Uh, uh-huh. But I want to start off, let me, let me talk a little bit about uh, how COVID is actually, you know, uh, impacting our communities. And then I'll talk a little bit about resources, because there are some newer resources that I will say that are mm-hmm. not as commonly known because some of, they're coming from smaller organizations that are just okay. grassroots at the grassroots level right okay. you have these small you know I was at, um, I'm in uh, Milwaukee as you know and I was at yeah. a common place on the north side of town and there was this mm-hmm. group just giving food away in COVID season because they knew that folks were out of work and mm-hmm. anybody could get in this line and I'm talking fresh food and you yeah. know fruits and vegetables healthy That's things good. No one knows about them because they're not documented, but they are helping with people with COVID, right? You know, outside of COVID testing centers. And so, you know, those are things that I know that are definitely happening. We definitely have Mm -hmm. our faith leaders who are working towards educating their congregations about COVID and what's happening now, even with the vaccine. But Mm -hmm. they really are trying their best to help people understand what does it mean to stay socially distanced, right? Or distance, understanding that the, and it's important that our faith community does step up because we get a lot of our information through our churches. And so, you know, I know that our, again, our, our Baptist church conventions here have been doing different work. And so, and I know in Madison and your, your neck of the woods, there's uh, churches that are hosting several uh, seminars and workshops and to address this as well. So right. definitely there are things that people are doing uniquely, mm-hmm. specifically by our community for our community that may not be necessarily documented. I will tell you that there are food pantries who are still work- up and running, right? right. Um, doing drive-by food giveaways. I can mm-hmm. identify that our uh, federally qualified health center here in particular, Milwaukee Health Services has identified a mechanism to give away emergency care packets for families. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you come in at COVID test and you get masks, you get the whole, um, you know, hand sanitizer uh, and and follow up by social workers to say, hey, what do you need in order to stay safe in your home? How many people are in your home? So those things are actually happening. um, And I think that's really important to know that it's actually being led by the community. Community people are leading these initiatives so they look like this issue because we're taking COVID very seriously. uh, And we have to, uh, quite frankly, to your point, COVID has hit our black community at an amazingly alarming rate. And yes, to your your points, 
part of it has to do with we are the face of the probably highest risk workforce where mm -hmm. we're in retail. So mm -hmm. we're working at those stores, those grocery stores, right? Mm -hmm. We're working at the CNA nursing homes, right? Oh, yeah. We're working in yeah. those spaces. We're CNAs, right? Mm -hmm. We are in some of probably the most high risk manufacturing organizations, right? Mm -hmm. We're working at the the distribution centers. So we're in some of the most high-risk positions and jobs, you know, second, of course, to our medical professions. And even if we are in medical professions, we still are high-risk because we're cleaning the rooms behind the people right. uh, who may have been diagnosed with COVID, right? So we really are mm -hmm. something to really take into consideration. And then, yes, we actually... We're social people. We live intergenerationally. We yes. really do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that puts us at risk. And it's, the risk is interesting because you've got the younger people mm -hmm. who are living with the older people where the older people are staying put. But yeah. it's the younger folks who are going out, going out and coming, yeah. coming in. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so we're really, we're working towards educating young folks on the, the urgency, the need to mask when you go, yeah, to wash your hands frequently. When mm -hmm. you come in, take your clothes off and do you know all of the necessary precautions to right. make sure that you are protecting the ones who have to remain in that house, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about, I think part of it is one thing about people of color, we do clean well and we, we do. believe in bleaching and cleaning. So I think that yep. part we got, we got to yep. almost. And we have access to that. We don't clean up or nothing else. But we definitely have to really help our efforts on getting people to understand how we need to really make sure we're masking, we're washing hands, young folks and, and, and middle folks too, people who have to go to work. How mm -hmm. do you exit and how do you enter into the home again? That's really something that, you know, we're really working hard to help uh, continue to educate our community around. And again, making sure that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. now, uh, you know, how do we uh, understand what the extent of COVID really is? You know, and, yeah. and it, unfortunately, it takes some people, it takes us, uh, you know, when we see it, you know, we're a grieving community, Fatu. Yeah. You mentioned the deaths around COVID. Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse than losing a loved one to COVID, mm -hmm. uh, but not having the opportunity to say a, a real goodbye, goodbye. Oh. a real grieving process. Yeah. And I think um, that's going to really impact our community in a way that we haven't thought about before. About and, yeah. and so to your earlier question about mm -hmm. seeking help, I think we are going to understand that we're going to have to have some kind of supportive services for our mental health issues. We have some yeah. chronic yeah. mental health illness in our community. We are yeah. going to need that collectively. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, talking about the COVID and now the vaccinations are out, mm -hmm. one is access, but the other thing is people's participation in willingness to participate in taking the vaccination. Are you involved with any of that outreach? Yes. Yeah, so I have, um, you know, what's interesting is that I have not been involved in the outreach through our program. Some of our research, our, all of us research uh, program does mm -hmm. provide information about the vaccine. Okay. We try our best to give as much information to the community as possible mm -hmm. um, without, without telling the community which way to make a decision. You right. know, I think that's an interesting, it's very interesting though, watching a lot of this happen. You know, what, what is actually confusing sometimes is that we know that African-Americans are, 
you know, highly impacted, most impacted mm -hmm. uh, by this COVID virus, as well as our other brown communities. Yet, yeah. you know, the distribution, the, the distribution rate has shown that we're still the last to actually get the vaccine. Right. And so yet another disparity will occur, quite frankly, with who's it going is to happen already. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the data has already shown it. And, and it's really just another disappointment of sorts. And I, and, you know, and I get yes. that, you know, that, that we, you know, I think that yes, people of color should have been a priority and it just didn't happen that way. And so again, I think when we talk about what needs to happen and mm -hmm. how do we address that? I think that is where our advocacy can come in to really push for saying the data, you guys have said it yourselves, the data have shown that these communities, our community is dying yeah. more frequently. We have the worst cases, whatever the case yeah. may be, mm -hmm. help us to understand. And even if you're using, you know, access, if you're using right. property, whatever mechanisms you're using to measure who is high at highest risk, we still come mm -hmm. out number one every time. So why isn't that how this vaccine is actually being distributed? You know, I understand again, frontline workers at the hospitals, the nurses, the doctors, I'm not taking away from that, but I still think there's room in the food chain for people of color to actually be prioritized uh, in this distribution. Now, when we actually um, do our work in the community, again, around the vaccine, we don't push yay or nay, we just educate the community about the vaccine, uh, that it is available, the types of vaccines, and basically give them enough information to make a decision. And you know, I will say this by too around this hesitancy comments and hesitancy yeah. pieces. I have found it to be interesting because sometimes I think we put perspectives in people's mind that may or may not have been there, right? But we're coming right. from a we're coming from our educated perspective mm -hmm. as opposed to really doing some some drill down kinds of things with the communities. And I know there's been, you know, data that shows that, you know, I think it says about 20, 25% of African Americans said they're going to take the, you know, the vaccine and they consider yeah. that very low. But for our community, that's great, right? Because I could imagine it being zero um, yeah. based on history, right? That's what they would have us to believe. But I think the interesting thing is that what I will say, what I think about this vaccine is that it's family to family, person to person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been in families where the elders are saying, absolutely, I got this, I'm taking it to the younger generation going like, no, not me, I'm, I'm yeah. good, you know, I'm not going to do this. And then the person in the middle, not sure, right, middle Gen Xers are, I'm mm -hmm. not sure, right, and that's in my own family, so I can mm -hmm. speak from experience, right, yeah. um, people who have actually live through the virus who are saying, no, I don't ever want to go through that again. I need mm -hmm. that vaccine. And then the loved ones who watch their folks go through that, you know, horrible virus are saying, well, I still am not sure. I don't want you to, I don't want to get it, but I'm still not sure I trust those uh, companies. And I don't know if I trust the actual vaccine, right? So we have all of these levels, but I don't necessarily, I think it's really family by family, person by person and individual, so, uh, and communities. And so there's never going to be a cookie. No, I, yeah, I agree that there's never going to be a mm -hmm. complete community that agrees with everything. I've also talked to people within our own community who, who are excited to take it so that they can protect themselves yes. and who are hesitant. And it's like, I'm not sure I trust this. This is too fast of an invention. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I want to take it now. People are hesitant. There are people who are definitely hesitant. I think it was last week. I was also listening to the Dear Pandemic group 
I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's mm -hmm. a scientist that gives um, information about COVID. So one of the things that stood out to me was that they were talking about a different, I mean, another vaccine that is supposed to be geared towards, say, third world countries. The reason for that is that, um, so that's not what we currently, that's not already what's currently out there. But the reason for that was the storage. So they said um, the reason for that vaccine to be different uh, to send to third world countries is like the nature of storage for mm. this, what we have. That in my mind worries me because um, people in the third world country already have their brains tainted already with everything to question about this vaccine and rightfully so given everything that has happened from our ancestors to today. Mm -hmm. And now if we have a different set of vaccine that is for the Western world and then the different set of vaccine for the third world, I think that's problematic. When I hear that, I mean, I was, I, I follow them. I was listening to right. their thing. And I, when I hear that, I was like, oh, that's a problem right there. Because yeah, you know, I'm not going to take it as. Absolutely. Like, and I think, you know, and I think what, it, what is interesting about that is that again, and I'm not a scientist or, or a physician, mm -hmm. right. but I think what's interesting is that that's the same idea and concept that people have about the vaccines that are in the United States, you know? So people are saying, okay, we got, we've got two different vaccines, you know, um, mm -hmm. which one are you going to take? And, okay. you know, now there's a new one coming along mm -hmm. and, but is, and, and the biggest question I've heard from the community is, is there a difference in the vaccine that hospital providers get and what community folks get? Mm. And so the answer has been no, but is that, you know, that is a diff, that's a, that's a conversation, right? Yeah. Um, you know, also, you know, how is it that one has to be stored at this temperature, but the other does not, right? Understanding the differences between mm -hmm. each of these vaccines is really important. And I think what we do is we raise skepticism by not giving enough information to right. communities to actually, to be able to digest yeah. and why things are happening. And I also think but to your point, you know, yes, our country, you know, when, you know, there's another vaccine, I think that's coming out by Johnson and Johnson. The yeah. first thing, the first thing I heard, I talked to like 10 black people and I'm not saying that this is a focus group or a big group, yeah, but right. the people in my circle, they were like, well, Johnson and Johnson, isn't that the people who had the talcum powder that- Talcum powder that's already on TV for, for yeah. cancer? Yeah. Why would, we, why would we use that vaccine? Why would we even trust that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of these are factors that we have to take. Uh, messaging is going to be so critical and so yeah. important around this, Absolutely. as opposed to telling us we need to be afraid or mm -hmm. telling us we're going to, you know, not take this vaccine. Find messaging and give us really transparent information to mm -hmm. say, here's what's happening. Here's how it's happening. And here's why, here's why you should take it. Not just because you'll be protected from, you know, COVID-19, uh, but here are some other added benefits or here is what else might be a benefit to your community, to your family, to mm -hmm. you know those kinds of things. And so I think that's gonna have to happen uh, from a community perspective. And then I think, to be honest, you know, you know, who were the people you did the trials on, right? That's yeah. the other piece. How, how diverse were the clinical trials? If it was diverse exposed and if it wasn't shared, why it wasn't? But the fact is, 
when you aren't part of clinical trials, when you aren't part of the original onset piloting of these drugs, how do we know it's going to work in us anyway? And that's the real, that's another real issue. That's that another real problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's people are asking that. So you're telling me now, oh, I can take this, you know, but Hmm, but I wasn't part of your I wasn't initial. part of the trial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do we know it's going to work for us and not have adverse effects, right? So yeah, I think, you know, even in all of that, I think mm -hmm. there could be some good stories to come out of this and some good opportunities to come out of this for mm -hmm. learning for all of us. You know, the reality is that we, we as a community are we're going to have to get to herd immunity at some point. And so we have to figure all of this out. But, you know, to get back to some kind of functionality, I won't say normalcy, yeah. but because I don't know we'll ever be in normal country uh, again. I don't think so. You know, that's going to take generations, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it's going to take time to get to normalcy. Oh, but, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's for sure. So, yeah, yeah but that, uh, I, yeah. Did I answer your question? Fab yes, you did. You Fab did. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> And now in your experience and, and, and now as your re, in your research, yeah. what have you found to be the major contributing factor for underrepresentation of Black participants in, in clinical <laughs> studies? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, so I, as again, you know, my, my work, as you know, has been in the community and figuring that question out is really important. I think one of the Still, one of the most critical factors, lack of participation, is, is how you broach the subject, um, who's running the studies. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we need so many more investigators of color. How the study design, you know, you know, you got investigators still designing studies and bringing them to mm -hmm. communities and saying, hey, this is what I've been thinking. This is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, are you on board, you know, and, and in the name of calling them community advisory boards and getting information from them. Right. Um, I think that is still a barrier. I think not designing studies specifically uh, with the with with the support of the community, but with the involvement of the community, right mm -hmm. at the research design level. I also think that after scientists come to the community, get information from the community, mm -hmm. uh, develop a study, uh, get funded, they don't come back to the community with enough data, with enough information, uh -huh. and or support. Right. So we'll participate. We we'll say yes, and then you know, but you get funded, and we never see you again. Never, right? that, yeah. that's, that's definitely that's still. Yeah, that's still an issue. Um, and then I think, to be honest, there's just not enough researchers who are asking uh, questions that are relative to black communities. Why, um, you know, you know, you're doing cancer, but you're doing general cancer. Are you not going to do a cancer that is specific to my community? Or yeah. is your research model going to be something out of the traditional model and strategy that I think should work, right? How do you begin to have these community led scientific research programs? And I think that, you know, along with scientists, and I think that's really important. I think educating the black community and other communities of color specifically around what is research, right? There's four areas of re four steps to a clinical trial. Do we know what those are? Right. Mm -hmm. Most people think that, oh, when you get to the human human stage of, of trials and research, that that was the beginning, but it wasn't. It didn't start there. And I think we really have to do a better job of educating communities mm -hmm. about why, what research is, 
why it's critical to uh, actually changing the narrative for black lives that's yeah. really critical to this but I, but honestly Fatu I have to be transparent and tell you I mm -hmm. don't think um I think that while we have several well-intended Caucasian and majority researchers mm -hmm. I think we need more researchers that look like our community like us, yeah yeah and and how do we attain that though I yeah, mean, I think this building path we need to do mm -hmm. uh, kind of educate the people who are actually like even from undergraduate students mm -hmm. going into graduate school or into research. Um, how do we get them to divert their focus to that area? Yeah, so I think that's a pathway. And I think the pathway has multiple routes, though. Oh, so yeah. I think exactly what you're saying is one great pathway. So we, <laughs> we tap into, but I think if we wait to undergraduate where we've missed it. I oh. think we go into, we need to be in elementary schools talking about this right now with these kids about pathways yeah. to becoming researchers, pathways to understanding why your oh. grandma and your granddad mm -hmm. died so prematurely. You know, why, what, why did mom get cancer? And, yeah. you know, we start helping our children at an early age understand what science is seriously mm -hmm. i mean hands-on mm -hmm. mechanisms yep. to really understand that science is an everyday practice it's not something that's just in the lab it is everyday living and mm -hmm. take the sting out of science quite frankly but mm -hmm. actually make it something user-friendly for our kids and then what we do after that is that we begin to create these pathways, right? For them mm -hmm. to get into our educational institutions right. and be able to succeed. So giving them the tools to succeed is really also important. Recognizing and stop believing in this notion that kids who come from impoverished communities can't learn the same or have the same kind of ze zealous attitude mm -hmm. that our Caucasian counterpart kids do, right? And, mm -hmm. and access. So many of us didn't have access to some of the same things as our kids in other higher educational districts or you know schools that had more money, but what we still have our brains, right? And we still have imagination and we still have possibility and potential. Yep. And I say tap into that early and then put these kids on a trajectory into STEM classes, into STEM programs and, and take them you know, through, through that. And then that, but that starts before the people program and starts before you know all of the, the things after we achieve certain levels so it has to be early so I think that's one way so of course and of course getting our undergraduate students is, is a definite pathway I think we need to have so many more relationships with our historically black colleges I think every institution ought to be required to have some kind of relationship with the HBCU because that's where your black scientists are right they have kids graduating in science every day science mm -hmm. math technology we need to be connected to those and really building a workforce saying hey we really want you to come over and do some things with us or even to a graduate school pathway right same difference um, but then I think there's another big workforce that's missing, opportunity that's missing through the workforce. So okay. even on our academic institution, right? Being mm -hmm. at the UW, for instance, yeah. I'm an academic staff person. I've been there doing work with researchers for several years. It's just yeah. now that I'm starting to go back and work on my right. PhD. What mm -hmm. a missed opportunity 10 years ago when I first yeah. started. Yeah. If you, There should be a leadership trajectory for academic staff coming in, particularly mm -hmm. of color to say, in five years, where do you want to be and how do we help yeah. you get there? Have you ever thought about becoming a scientist? Uh, yes, you do community engagement, but there's a room. There's room for that there's too. Room for that too, yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, mm -hmm. 
you hit all the right notes. I mean, on this, and I really, I think you, I, I really like the idea of sort of demystifying the mindset that science is that like that difficult thing, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. make it an everyday thing that it's already happening uh, mm-hmm. so that people can digest the fact that this is what we are doing already. It's just uh, putting a different layer, another set of layers to it to get to the research level. And I think communicating that message to especially our young people would be an important way for the future of science and our community. Absolutely, yeah. And like I said, I think, you know, recognizing that you have team members right in front of you yeah. who need to be pushed or mentored or encouraged to actually take on these new opportunities. opportunities. The institution. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, I kind of feel like not many people think about going from being academic staff to becoming a scientist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another, that's another opportunity that so many people are missing and that Mm -hmm. should be promoted within different disciplines so Mm -hmm. that people know that that's actually a thing like people Mm -hmm. honestly wouldn't even know that that's a thing that they can actually do so even just the knowledge of knowing that could mm-hmm. spark an interest for someone else, you know, because Absolutely. sometimes you, you, so let's say you are MBA, some, someone with an MBA would settle with, that's what I learned to do. That's what I'm going to do. But you're like, no, I want to actually do something different now. Now mm-hmm. that I got to do that and work on that, there is more to do that mm-hmm. I can explore. And I, I don't think that many people know, even know that that's a possibility. Right. Exactly. And you're right. And we, are surrounded by the science, but we have no idea what the opportunities are. We're thinking that we're, this is my space, this is my lane, this is my silo, right? So we're siloed into these spaces as opposed to saying, you know, what is the menu options here? We should have menu of options, but it's like, nope, this is what I'm here to do. I'm hired to do this, this, this. No, there are opportunities that we actually have to be uh, be start to either be open to us and mm-hmm. or we have to acknowledge and start investigating because right. I think there is, and again, it's not even, you know, I said the institution just because I work at an academic institution, yeah. but mm-hmm. even in, in in our corporate organizations, yeah. in our community-based programs, there is always room for us to figure out how do we get to the next level Absolutely. and then bringing those other community minds with us? I always say, uh, Fatu, yeah. you know, if we could ever get to this place, full inclusion, full diversity, mm-hmm. man, we wouldn't need all these focus groups because you would have the right people at the right table to share the information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is yeah. absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. If you would express one last message to the great advocacy groups who are addressing addressing and supporting those affected by Alzheimer's in America, yeah. especially in within our black community, what would you say? Oh boy, I would my message to advocacy groups and black community members who are addressing Alzheimer's and specifically, I would say thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't give up. There is lots of work that has been done and and kudos. And I think, you know, we need to continue to acknowledge that work, you know, through the WAI, we uh, have really had an opportunity to work with families through our chorus projects and really support the community through the endeavors that need to happen. I encourage 
all groups, all people who are believing that we can continue to keep our loved ones home safely, or we have really adequate services if we have to do uh, social supportive services, home placement services. My statement to you is don't give up. It is to hang in there, continue to do the good fight work. We need you. And thank you so much. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is this one too. And this is what I try to leave people with, with my inspirational points is that everybody couldn't do what you're doing. You have been selected. You have been chosen, anointed and appointed for Mm -hmm. your specific mission. Don't take it lightly. I know it's tough, but hang in there because it is definitely something that you have been called specifically designed to do. And I encourage you to just believe that and believe in yourself because you can hang in, you can do, you are making a difference. Believe it or not, you are. It may be small, but that's still small means difference. So we can get, and kudos to you and hang in there. So that would be my take. That's a beautiful, beautiful message. And finally, how do you practice self-compassion on yourself? And what do you do for self-care? That's not a fair question. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Self-compassion actually is really funny. I really learned about self-compassion in my first semester, last semester. So so yes, I was just started my graduate program last semester. And I had this, just this, Oh gosh, I don't know how to describe it, but it was huge, Uh a huge lift for me. But I took a step back and this is what I do. I took a step back. I did some prayers. I did some meditations, but I gave myself space to not be perfect. Yeah. I'm not perfect and I will never be and I never have been. Mm -hmm. And I, no one expects me to be perfect except me. And I had to come to that realization. And that's part of self-care for me. That is self-care. Realizing that I am human and I'm not perfect and I'm going to make mistakes and it's okay. And so, you know what, you know, always trying to be the, the one mm-hmm. for my family, for my job, for my friends. No, I, I can't do that. And, and it's okay to say that. So that. Yeah. So that's kind of my self-care and that's what I do. I I read, I I now go back, you know, I spend time with my little cousins who are Mm -hmm. six and four. And I just, that's therapeutic for me because you know what I'm doing? I'm drawing pictures of little dolls and kitty cats and houses and I'm taking my mind off of all of this other adult stuff. (laughs) That's wonderful. That's real. No, that's really, really, um, that's really good, Gina. I'm glad that you're doing that. I mean, because that's important for you to be able to continue the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, thank again, you. Yeah, again, thank you so much for doing this. It's just incredible to have you on this podcast and to have this amazing discussion with you. Your insight is always a treat for my soul. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Fatu. I don't take it lightly. And uh, thank you so much. And may God continue to bless you. Thank you. Yes. Thanks so much for tuning in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving us a comment or sending us a message via email at superagentpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us through social media. And if you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe to any of your favorite podcast listening sites Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. 
Until next time, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care.